Welcome to the Thought Leadership Project, a podcast by Jay Harrington and Tom Nixon, exploring how lawyers can turn expertise into thought leadership and thought leadership into new business. Jay, I've noticed that you have recently, and I think kind of it's your way of writing and sort of fortifying positions. I've noticed though recently you citing quite a few research studies in your thought leadership writing. I have been, yes, uh, you you are correct. And, and part of that's just the nature of the time of year. A lot of research comes out, I think, uh, you know, kind of leading into the new year or shortly after it. So a lot of interesting things have been coming up, but, but yeah, I think it's important. Uh, you know, oftentimes we're looking for, you know, something more objective than our own opinions to support our thought leadership and our writing. And so I'm always uh, excited to find a, a good study out there. It's one of the reasons we did our own study last year, right? Just to just to be able to, um, I, I, the way I like to think about it and frame it is, you know, if, if there's a statistic that get, or a, an assertion that's often made, but there's not a lot to back it up um, or to support it, then it seems like someone should, should go out and do the, do the work to do the research on that kind of thing. But it's nice that there are a lot of people doing it. Yeah, right. And yeah, you mentioned our content marketing survey that we did in 2019. And then two others that we and you often cite, uh, one is the a LinkedIn study that Edelman did with them on uh, the consumption of thought leadership, which of course is near and dear to our hearts. And the second one would be, well, it's more of a stat that you frequently refer to in the the Gartner research that showed that uh, purchasers of sophisticated services are generally 50% of the way through their decision um, before they even reach out to a a prospective uh, service provider. So those are things that we point to. Again, it's good to fortify your own thought leadership with that, with that data. And uh, we have a guest on today that's going to take a slightly different uh, take on this topic. And and we're going to explore how the research itself can become thought leadership. So I wanted to welcome um, someone who I regard as a friend, and hopefully he does as well, uh, and that is Chuck Bean. Chuck Bean is a partner with the MarTech Group, and he leads MarTech's voice of customer practice, um, including the the newest AI-driven tools, emotion intelligence, which is something probably that will come up today. And uh, Chuck, you help consumer insight professionals hear the true voice of customers. It unlocks success by focusing on what truly motivates customer behavior. And we've had conversations along the way of us knowing each other, just how important that is. So welcome to the show, Chuck. Thanks, Tom. Pleasure to be here uh, with you and Jay. And uh, sounds like a great topic. Appreciate the opportunity. And and, uh, absolutely, we are friends. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah. And so just for people who don't know, MarTech Group, how would you position what MarTech Group does? Obviously, you are experts. You personally have more than 25 years experience in market research and customer insights. But what do people hire typically MarTech to do? The simplest way of uh, putting it is we're we're a custom research uh, agency. And and custom research basically starts with a question that somebody can't answer. And uh, and we try to figure out the best way to answer that question. So uh, that ranges from questions about their customers, about their market, uh, about their competitors, about opportunities that they're considering, and, uh, and for sure, content and, and content marketing. So um, clients come to us when they need a bit of an insurance policy on big decisions that they're making and, and are willing to invest in, um, 
and getting some confidence around those decisions. And, and we design studies from the ground up that uh, go out and, and gather the right data and, and analyze it and, and bring back our recommendations. We're, we're, uh, we're kind of a quasi-research and, and consulting agency. Great. And I wanted to pick your brain on custom research. I, at the outset, I cited three studies, and two of which in particular I think are good examples I can, I can say with certainty, one is a great example of a firm, the Edelman and LinkedIn study, a, uh, a great example of Edelman establishing their own bona fides as a thought leader in the thought leadership space by going out, doing the research, partnering with LinkedIn, gleaning insights, and then understanding the data and then repurposing it for the market then to consume and then understand. And I'm curious what your perspective is on how custom research and the results that you glean from it can be packaged or should be packaged to an industry at large as thought leadership content. Yeah, well, I'm familiar with the study you mentioned. And uh, I mean, I think those kinds of studies are the backbone of thought leadership. And, you know, unless you're Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos and, you know, you're, you're a business savant, um, if you're like the rest of us mopes, you're going to have to go out and, and do some investigating and, and find information that's valuable and, and interesting and relevant. Um, and so research is the method for doing that. And, and it's, a, it's a nice, easy pathway for having content because uh, it's, it's very, it's immediate, it's timely. You, you've just, and you're, you're talking to the people who, um, in the research that ultimately you want also digesting content uh, in many cases. So, you know, there are a lot of ways that you can um, package custom research to be thought leadership. Uh, and we can certainly chat about some of those ways and um, some of the experience that our firm has had directly with clients that are taking our uh, deliverables and channeling them right into uh, valuable content uh, of, of various types. Yeah, yeah. If, you, if you could maybe give us an example or two, because I was going to ask you, are you seeing more of this in recent years where, you know, as you said, you know, typically you get hired to answer a difficult high stakes question um, that serves as an insurance policy for a company to make big, bold decisions. That's obviously a huge application for the case for research. Um, in the context of thought leadership, though, are you seeing more and more firms doing this with the express purpose to glean insights that they can reposition as thought leadership content? Absolutely. Well, can, can you give uh, you know, examples? As, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, we've, we've done a lot of work with um, uh, local firms here in the Detroit area that are involved in uh, uh, various franchising organizations. We work with uh, Quicken Loans, Goldfish Swim Schools. These are, these are some of our favorite local clients. And a lot of what those firms are doing is, is looking for information that they are then repurposing um, rather immediately into um, claims or messaging or uh, blogs. Um, and in some cases, you know, we're the ones helping them. We're up on stage. We do a lot of work with associations, in fact, where then we're, we're part of the team that is delivering either through webinars or helping to create eBooks, um, you know, the next stage of the deliverable. So our, our traditional reports, have kind of morphed over time. So, um, you know, we're seeing less and less PowerPoint and traditional reports and more and more output from us that is actually sort of pre-content, if you will, where we're creating infographics, we're creating 
um, ebooks or, or webinar docs, things like that, that are much easier for our clients to just pick up and run with and start turning more rapidly into content, um, whether it's about a, a, a innovations or products or experiences that they're trying to market. Um, you know, it's, it's still the same foundational research that we're doing. We're asking fundamentally a lot of the same questions, but the way we disseminate that knowledge has changed pretty pretty fundamentally in the last five to ten years, you know, coincidental to the, the growth of content marketing, particularly with some of our B2B clients, I'd say. I'd say that's where some of the more dynamic activity is. You know, the B2C crowd, they get it, have gotten it for a longer time. The B2B folks, um, you know, are, are kind of coming into that same world and, and eager to be doing more content marketing. And so I, that's, that's where we're seeing a lot of fresh activity uh, on this front. Thanks for that, Chuck. And um, I, I think, you know, our, our audience here is uh, primarily lawyers and law firms. And they, mm -hmm. you know, when, and that's, that's most of the client base of our, of our marketing agency as well. So when I'm out talking to a client about um, ideas and ways to uh, stand out in the marketplace of ideas, the idea of doing original research oftentimes comes up. And, and the way I try to speak about this issue with clients, and I'm certainly not as, uh, I don't have as much expertise on it as you do, but I mean, a few of the things I think about if, you know, for one of our listeners who might be considering why this is valuable, I mean, the, for one, it, it's it's a way to differentiate yourself and differentiate your expertise. Um, so you, you you then have something valuable and unique by conducting this research. You become the primary source of of the data, and and that's valuable. Um, people start linking to your website uh, to and citing your study uh, and the statistics that you've gathered. So you start to become more visible as a result. Um, it also, you know, I think. It's, it's, it's sometimes dangerous to, to set out to do this, but it does also help you make the case with your thought leadership. If, if thought leadership is all about having a strong point of view on something, sometimes you do need that data to back it up. An example that might be in, the own, in, in our own research that we conducted, I mean, one of the things we do is write thought leadership content collaboratively with our clients. And one of the findings of the study we did about content marketing was that the number one challenge that legal marketers face is getting attorneys to produce content. So that obviously reinforced some of the arguments that we're making. Um, and then it's also a great form of collaboration with clients. Um, so you can involve other people necessarily in your research, um, both those who you are surveying and those who you might be collaborating to do that research. So I think there's a lot of benefits to do this and certainly would look to you to add maybe some more benefits. But for a law firm, it might be sold on the idea of doing some research like this. Um, what are some things that they should be thinking about doing? Maybe one or two things that they be, should, be, should be sure to kind of include in their process and their strategic planning if they're undertaking an original research project. Yeah, sure. I, I think you nailed it. Um, I, I'll, I'll echo the uh, be different as, as a primary one. Um, make sure that, uh, that what you're looking at for that content is, is unique um, would be the number one thing. But I think the other, a couple of other benefits um, along those same lines, you know, to being visible, um, it's also legitimacy and um, sort of um, scale that you're implying when you go out and do research, and particularly if you hire somebody like us. So if, if readers are out there and they see that one, you, you took the time to do some research, that tells them uh, you're committed and, and that you care. 
And if you've invested uh, in outsourcing some of that research, then, then there's an implication of size and scale to your organization and seriousness to your organization that comes with that as well. So there are a lot of side benefits, fringe benefits of doing it. And then, you know, the things that I would say are other key success factors are um, being precise, being specific. Um, you know, a lot of the content that we see um, can be too general. And, and so part of the value, I think, of doing research is you, you can find those golden nuggets. You can find those more detailed aspects or perspectives on topics that are, you know, rich in SEO and, and they're going to draw eyeballs. But, you know, if you're just saying the same thing as the other 52 blogs on the same topic, then you're kind of lost. But research can help you identify a perspective that might be unique or contrarian. And, and those are the ones that kind of, um, we think, light a brighter bulb. And then I'd say the other thing is staying balanced. You know, research these days has gotten, um, in, in our opinion, overly quantitative in nature, a lot of survey work. And that's great. You know, it's really easy these days for anybody to go out and do their own surveys. And um, we're not trying to dismiss that. But don't lose sight of words and text and quotes and, you know, that personalized uh, aspect of what you're gathering in research. You know, the um, if, if storytelling is all the rage, and it is, and personalization is all the rage, and it is, then the, the pathway to stories and the pathway to being personalized is by human beings talking. So make sure that if you're going to do research, that it's not just a bunch of ratings questions. Those are good. You need those. But, but ask some open ends or do some qualitative. Just talk to people and use what they say in your content. You know, those things in quotation marks uh, we find um, always have been in our deliverables. You know, when we put presentations up or share data with our core clients outside of the content marketing world, the stuff that really grabs the audience are when they see verbatim comments, when they see things in quotes, and they're, and they're asking, who said that? Tell me more. So if you can get those people curious about those same things in a blog or a an ebook or what have you, then it's more likely that they're going to pick up the phone and call you and say, you know, I saw what somebody said there. I, I'd like to learn more about that. It's just a, so keeping a balance around, you know, data for sure, but balance that with, you know, qualitative data words. Yeah. And one other thing, Chuck, that, that just in my, again, uh, my, my, I'm not a, I'm not an expert in this area, but just I'm interested in it. And one thing I've observed, um, and in people that I've, I think have done it well, and, and particularly have translated uh, data into uh, business opportunities and significant thought leadership opportunities, citing back to that, uh, that survey that Gartner, the sales and training company, did the statistic from which uh, Tom cited earlier. They also, I think, are an example of someone who kept a, a real open mind and and was not um, adverse to being surprised and and adapting to the results that they found. I know that they did a big survey of sales professionals and what they expected to find, which was consistent with how they did their training, was that relationship building in the sales process was the a number one predictor of success, that you set out to build a relationship or rapport with clients. But what the data found was that it was those salespeople who were actually challenging their clients and customers in the process, not, not 
necessarily trying to seek consensus or a relationship, but challenging assumptions and things of that nature, which which were the salespeople who had the greatest results. And as a result of that data and that research they did, they flipped their whole business model around and wrote a book called The Challenger Sale and have grown significantly as a result of that. But it was one nugget that was totally unexpected from the data that they uh, that they set out to to obtain um, that they were open to adapting to and 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 believing in the data. So I thought that was just an interesting anecdote of um, you know, something that probably often happens, which is that people have confirmation bias about what they what they expect to find in the data, and then, uh, but what they really should be doing is really keeping an open mind about it. Yeah, absolutely. I, that's a great point, and I think you know there are a couple of things we do in in the research world to do that, and I would advise your clients if they set out to do research is um, take it in steps. You know, the way that we do research is it's an iterative learning process. And if, if you think you know all the questions, you're kidding yourself. And so plan for the fact that as you learn, you're also going to learn better questions to ask. And you want to leave room in your process to answer those next phase of questions. And so the ways that we do that are, you know, soft launching a survey, do it in two steps, soft launch, see how it goes. Did you learn anything from doing the first 10 interviews before you go off and do 100 interviews? Um, setting up qualitative and quantitative. So you, you have a way of, okay, I've got all this survey data, but now, so what? I, I don't understand it all. Well, pick up the phone and call a few of the people that did the survey. So there's some tricks of the trade there that enable you to keep that open um, framework. I think that's an excellent point. And there's something that you're describing, Chuck, in your world that sounds familiar to our own world and, and probably so many industries out there is that technology is making a lot of tasks a lot easier. And in some ways, it's democratizing our access to certain outcomes. So marketing, there's all sorts of marketing automation tools and stuff, which on its face make the tasks much more easy and you know can sometimes run without a person but the human element is something that is critical i think when you're talking about doing you know not achieving a, a list of tasks and like marketing tasks did i send out the newsletter did i post something on social media but when you start elevating your campaign to one of have i carved out a reputation as a thought leader that's something technology really won't be able to do on its own and i'm assuming and based on conversations we've had similar things in your world so you have all this access to ai but you've shared cases with me where there's um, in other research studies that you could rely on AI to maybe do some data ga gathering, but maybe the analysis is flawed because they don't understand, when I say they, meaning the robots, don't necessarily understand things like nuance and sarcasm and, and things like that and can exactly. bring back flawed data. Isn't that the case? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's, there's two C's that we, we should be talking about. We're talking about the first one, content, but the second one's context. And, um, you know, I think machines are not very good at con context. They, they can get content. They can find content for you. You can, there's lots of social listening tools, web scraping tools. We've, we've got, as you say, we've got access to a lot of technology these days, but we've learned over the years that you've got to use it judiciously and you can't rely on it entirely. And there's a tendency out there that, you know, just because you can, you know, maybe you shouldn't uh, do that. And, I think uh, we've got clients who've, who've taken some of these pure AI t 
tools and used them and been very disappointed in the results. And so I, I absolutely would advise, you know, you've got to keep a human touch um, to whatever you're doing. You know, I, as you said up front, I lead our voice of customer practice. Well, there's a lot of voice of customer going on out there that no one's ever heard a word. So how can you consider something voice of customer if all it is is a bunch of numerical ratings? You've, you've yeah. got to talk to people, listen to people if you want to, if you want to engage with those people. And so uh, we, we strongly under, you know, that's, again, it goes back to that balanced approach to this. Don't, if you're, you know, use SurveyMonkey, that's great. Go do a survey of your customers or in your space. But then, you know, do yourself a favor, pick up the phone and talk to a few people pre and post, and you'll be amazed at the color that you can add to what you've learned and, and the whys that are underneath the numbers, right? What, why does the data look that way is the more important question yep. than a bunch so, of descriptive statistics. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Chuck, I just wanted to follow up on that because I think that's important, again, especially for our audience, because I think research of this nature can be particularly valuable for from a marketing standpoint or from a you know thought leadership standpoint for for lawyers and law firms because by nature they're they, they're good at that second piece right it, the the data gathering itself is i don't want to it's it's certainly not a commodity there's an art to that as well but that's just one piece of the puzzle i guess is a better way to put it it's that second piece which is understanding what the implications of that data are that i think you know lawyers should be set up well to to um, address, which would be things like, I mean, in the context of their work, the, the job of a lawyer is to sort of identify the key issues in, in complex information, contextualize that information, and then, and then communicate whatever the, you know, the argument they're making from that information clearly. So, I mean, do, do you agree? I mean, lawyers seem inclined to, or are set up to really be able to leverage these types of opportunities, um, but despite the fact that I don't think enough of them do it. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, you know, they're um, highly analytical folks as well. And, um, you know, there are a lot of uh, tools out there that can help speed up. I mean, I think that's that's where the benefit of technology helps in, in our world today and not just market research is speed, right? And so the amount, the, the volumes of, of information that lawyers have to pour over in order to get to their their positions is immense. And so technology is out there. There are qualitative data analytics tools. There are a lot of uh, NLP tools, natural language processing tools that they should be using if they're not already um, to help speed up that process. But yeah, you're, you know, there's still some, there's still a creative side. There's still an art side that goes with the science that, that they need to remember. And, and that just, you know, that's a talent. That's people uh, on, whether it's on your staff, uh, on our staff, on their staff. Um, learning how to work properly with that technology. And, yeah. and I would say that there is a definite commoditization. Information has become very much a commodity in, in many of the markets that we work for. It's, you know, finding the, the information is easier and faster than it's ever been, but making sense of it is also more difficult because of that. There's a lot of noise. Yep. And I can say as the only person on this podcast who's never been an attorney and has never been a researcher it just seems like the two are a match made in heaven because i see attorneys who love to point to text 
when making arguments, right? And I see on the other hand, researchers who are expert in gleaning text and contextualizing it, that the two just seem perfectly matched. So, well, before we let you go, Chuck, um, anything specific to law firms with, you mentioned how the research industry is changing. Are there any takeaways specifically for law firms that might be relevant? Is they're considering, I guess we should go back to the consideration should or shouldn't we even engage in a research project? Because as Jay contended, he sees that not enough law firms are doing it. But anything about what's new in your industry that might light the light bulb for an attorney or a law firm to say, hmm, maybe 2020 is the year for us to consider doing this? I mean, we, we've talked about a few already about, you know, the uh, impact of AI. We've talked about, you know, do-it-yourself research that you can do a lot more these days. Um, but I think you hit, you, you uh, clued at it earlier in the discussion, emotions and the non-rational side. If you want to, to me, you know, the, the practice of law and winning is as much a non-rational argument as it is a rational argument. And so, uh, you know, one of my favorite phrases again, balance and, you know, balancing your rational arguments with your non-rational arguments and, and the non-rational piece. And so if you want to, you know, depending upon the type of law you're practicing, you know, influence the other side or influence a jury or influence a judge, understanding that, you know, there are non-rational emotional elements that, you know, when you look at how the brain is wired, actually outweigh the rational or conscious side of our brains. And so, you know, don't forget that. It, and, and it might seem, you know, in a practice like law, we, we do a lot of work with a lot of really technical engineering minded folks who, you know, sometimes look at us cross-eyed when we start talking about emotions. And so I could imagine some of the lawyers listening, thinking the same way. I would encourage them to do some research on it. You know, look at Daniel Kahneman's book on thinking fast, thinking slow. Look at, look at the research that's out there about how the brain works. And if you want to motivate brains, which is what we're all in the business of doing, you need to plug into that emotional side of it, that system one, non-rational emotional side. And, and there are research tools we have, we have access to that now, you know, in the last five years have made that much more doable for, for many different types of organizations than it was in the past. You know, it used to be you had to send somebody off to an fMRI machine and hook them up to a skull cap and monitor their brain waves, et cetera. Well, it's a lot easier than that and read as more cost effective as well. So we can use some very practical tools to help people understand the emotions that, that a subject is feeling about any given topic. So that, that'd be one big thing, I think, for people to consider. Yeah. Tom, I just want to make one last point before we wrap up, uh, just to kind of uh, put an exclamation point on, on things Chuck said and, and the value of this as a tactic for thought leadership marketing. But, um, you know, if, if any lawyer out there is looking for an example of like, what, it, what really is the impact of this? So you can look into a, a parallel industry or a horizontal industry, which would be um, the example of PwC, which is in its 23, 23rd year of the CEO uh, uh, CEO survey that they do, um, and they just released those results uh, on January 20th at the Davos World Economic Forum uh, conference. And if you if you search that study, um, every major news organization in the world, seemingly, uh, if you click on the news tab on Google, is citing uh, the PwC CEO 
uh, roundtable survey as you know and doing news articles on it. So they they've they're an example of a professional services firm who's doing it right and has done it for a long time and has gotten probably you know tens of millions of dollars in free media every year as a result of that that one piece of thought leadership. Yep, and like a good attorney, you presented a sound closing argument, Jay. So I commend you. And obviously, PwC is among the thought leaders in their industry. So there's no coincidence there. So, all right, Chuck, well, thank you so much. We will, uh, of course, in our show notes, we'll uh, link to how people can get a hold of you on LinkedIn and, of course, at martechgroup.com. I probably, what was the name of that book again? I'll, I'll include that in the show notes as well. That's Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Great. Okay. Um, anything else you want to leave with a uh, parting word of wisdom? Uh, no more parting words of wisdom. Just a, a simple thank you. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate the chance to, uh, to be on with you guys. And uh, thanks very much for having me. All right. Well, we enjoyed it as well. Thank you for your time. And we'll catch everyone else on the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Thought Leadership Project. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, visit thethoughtleadershipproject.com.